quick note to our listeners. This episode was recorded before the COVID-19 pandemic. We understand that the future may look a little different now, but we still want to share these passionate conversations. This is Mary Celeste Bell. Welcome to the Blackberry Podcast, where we'll dive into stories and knowledge of the incredible people that are part of the Blackberry story. You'll hear from longtime friends, amazing visiting personalities, and our own inspired team members. We are thankful for longstanding friendships with industry leaders who always have a great story to share. On this episode, our own Andy Chabot sat down with members of the Van Winkle family to talk about the Pappy legacy, their family's brand history, what they're up to now, and of course, bourbon. I haven't met all of you. My name is Andy Chabot. I'm the director of food and beverage for Blackberry Farm in Blackberry Mountain. And uh, I am super excited and honored, uh, a little nervous to be leading this, this panel of uh, essentially, you know, bourbon royalty here. And, uh, but, but that being said, you know, we've had um, the good fortune here at, at Blackberry to have worked with uh, these whiskeys and with this family for as long as I've worked with the company, which is at least 17 years now. Um, and, and I remember when you could get these whiskeys. Uh, and and uh, it was an I interesting time. I wanted yeah. to sell some whiskey. Yeah, well, and you know, it, I, I think your family has a history of being salespeople. Uh, but you know, today uh, here on the panel, we have um, two of the three triplet daughters. The question's been asked, are you twins? And I think the resounding answer is no, you're not, but you're, you're two of, of the triplets. So we have Luis and Carrie here today. Uh, Chanel is where? Louisville. Someone's working today. <laughs> Someone had to work. And uh, also Julian, uh, the third, here with us today. So uh, you all have built just an amazing <coughs> brand, you know. And and I started, you know, saying, I remember when you could get, you know, Happy and Van Winkle whiskeys, and um, you know, I've I've told people in the past that there was a time where we could buy every year about a barrel of of the 15 year or it was close to 15 year and i remember it was our house bourbon for a little bit in that it was you know we made drinks with it we had a drink called the old western on our menu it was good it had peach bitters um sugar cube i mean it was one of andrew's special drinks and uh and, and i remember distinctly when uh we went tried to go back to the fountain and, and say, you know, we're ready to buy our barrel this year. And it's like, no more, no more barrel of, of our whiskey. The, the whiskey craze had started, I think. Right, right exactly. Uh, but I guess, you know, it wasn't always, it wasn't always that, that way, right? I no, we, uh, we had to, just like whatever you all do, you have to go out and sell your business. So um, uh, it, um, it obviously did a little better than we expected, but we had a lot of help and um, I was, talking to somebody yesterday I can't remember exactly who but really the best what really did it for our brand and many other brands out there was word of mouth by the customer because you tell one person about your whiskey and they'll tell four or five ten people whatever and that geometric progression takes off so um, and you also have to have a really good product for that to work and uh, we I believed in it obviously and uh, our family has always believed in the 
formula, formula that we have for making our bourbon and whiskey. So it's um, uh, it's it, it was hard back in the day. I, I tell people it's a 35-year overnight success story. 35-year overnight success story, and maybe even longer than that. Yeah, I suppose. So, Pappy was a real person, right? Not just someone on a on a label. Right. Um, he was this fellow on the. My sister Sally wrote this book uh, in 1999 when it was published and at that time uh, well I'll just kind of start from scratch so to speak um, my grandfather uh, born in Danville Kentucky uh, his dad was a lawyer and his dad's brother was a lawyer and they were both Secretary of State of Kentucky uh, after Pappy's dad died his brother became Secretary of State and obviously, Pappy did not want to be a lawyer, so he went to Center College in Danville for a couple of years and then worked his way <clears throat> to Louisville, about 80 miles away, and got a job with Mr. William LaRue Weller, W.L. Weller, at, at their wholesale house. And the Wellers were a German family, um, as most of the distillers in America came over from Europe and were, uh, that's all distillery history in America, whether it be rye or any, any business. A distilling business were all Europeans, uh, so their families had made whiskeys and distilled products uh, in Europe. And um, uh, Pappy uh, joined. I we have no idea how this job came about, but he had a friend in banking business, um, Alex Farnsley in Louisville, and the Stitzel Distillery was a separate company in Louisville, and they made the whiskey for themselves. And also, a few days a year, they would put the Weller. Uh, W.L. Weller plaque above the distillery door and make W.L. Weller whiskey for their at their for their formula at their formula. Um, so that's uh, that's where the uh, production came from. But Pappy was a salesman. Horse and buggy would go up to Northern Kentucky, right across from Cincinnati. Would speak would spend weeks and sometime a month on the road. Uh, horse and buggy selling his product around um, uh, Eastern Kentucky, Eastern Central Kentucky. Um, to, to anybody and even sold some whiskey to some Ill, illegal production uh, farmers in the in the mountains to improve their product uh, he thought said this will improve your 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 moonshine if you put a little bit of this as a blending uh, agent yeah probably so okay. <laughs> yeah just a little rectifying but, uh, you know he, he worked hard at it and be gone weeks at a time and um, he was married and lived in Louisville but um, that's where it all started so he he was selling <coughs> Stitzel product it was Stitzel distillation, and then uh, that went right up until Prohibition. Uh, so right up to Prohibition. Prohibition, uh, and they were one of five or six distilleries uh, allowed by the government to make medicinal whiskey. Um, Buffalo Trace, my partner's now, which was probably George T. Stagg back then. Yeah. Um, distillery uh, was one of one of Brown Foreman's distillery. Um, uh, the people that make Woodford Reserve were allowed, and, and a few others, the Beams. So the, those five or six companies stayed in business uh, throughout Prohibition selling medicinal whiskey. You take your, uh, I was at uh, Sissy's cousin's house over the weekend last weekend and saw an pr actual prescription book, which I'd never yeah. seen before, and would rip out the prescription, the doctor or the pharmacist, um, or the doctor would give that, you'd give that to the pharmacist, and you could get a pint of whiskey every 14 days. And one lady's name kept name kept appearing in there every every 14 days. You know, Janet Jones got a got a pint of whiskey for a sore fingernail, uh, rheumatoid arthritis, um, you know, heart disease, uh, all kind of weird stuff. But um, uh, prohibition came, ended in 1933, and uh, that's when Pappy 
and Mr. Farnsley and Mr. Stitzel, the three of them, started the modern-day Stitzel-Willer Distillery, which is what this book is about. Um, and uh, they opened up Derby Day 1935. And uh, their brands, eventually, the main brand being W.O. Weller back then, Old Fitzgerald, Rebel Yell, any of y'all who went to school in the South may remember that brand, uh, and Cabin Still. And they were all the same weeded bourbon whiskey, which means we use wheat instead of rye in the recipe, along with corn and malted barley. So uh, that's what they made. Uh, same whiskey, just different age and proof. Um, and uh, my dad worked for Pappy. Uh, eventually, Mr. Farnsley passed away, and Mr. Stitzel. So Pappy uh, became, my grandfather became the, um, and some other family stockholders were, were uh, owners of the company, Stitzel Weller. And um, uh, dad joined him uh, when he got out of college, went to the war, and we've got all these letters, and he was a, just kept notes on everything. He kept all his letters, my mother did, and so forth. So we have all this information from dad writing Pappy and, and his mother and, and my mom uh, letters from, from the you know, Pacific fighting the Japanese um, and uh, just and he half of the letter to Pappy would be about business and then he'd tell him about what we did you know in his uh, tank commander days um, fighting the Japanese but after the war he j went back to the company and um, uh, Pappy passed away in 1965 uh, the cigars and bourbon finally got the best of him at 91, 91. Um, <laughs> and dad continued to operate along with her. my uncle my dad had a sister um, whose name was Mary Chenault Van Winkle. That's where we get the Chenault from. I was wondering where that. Uh -huh. And um, and uh, so that was the two sides of the family. Uh, until the day she died, at the age of about 94, she was known as Rip. And my nickname as a kid working at the distillery was Rip, but she was Aunt Rip was her uh, her nickname, so to speak. But that was the other side of the family. So, Pappy passed away, and Dad operated the distillery with my uncle up until 1972 when we had some stockholder, family stockholder issues where the bourbon business was terrible in the 70s. Um, vodka was taking over. There was something called light whiskey that, that showed up, um, which was, a, you know, the industry wanted to attract more of the, uh, maybe the uh, ladies started to, you know, not many ladies drank bourbon whiskey. It's kind of a manly thing, but uh, they kind of, wanted to get, capture that market. So vodka and light whiskeys and all kind of other rums and so forth took over and the bourbon business all over the, the country uh, went down the, down the toilet, it seems like. Um, and uh, so dad was forced to sell the distillery. It almost didn't kill him right then, but he did uh, get prostate cancer a few years later. So he probably had something to do with that, with the, the stress. But he did start the old Rip Van Winkle label was the only thing we took with us from the sale of the distilleries. <clears throat> is that a label that existed before? Is it wasn't one of the the four? It never was used, but um, he had plans, and I've got sample labels um, of Old Rip on there. Uh, but he never got around to bottling an Old Rip Van Winkle brand. Um, so we got that label. He kept it. That's the only thing he got. Um, there was no non-compete, so he got right back in, his, in it after a few years. That's how he got right back in it. And it was uh, it was a struggle back then to sell and uh, decanters. You all seen these whiskey decanters out there? They don't sell anymore, but um, that was one way to sell bourbon was through a fancy type decanter, whether it be a wildlife bottle or a fireman. Or we did a lot of school bottles to help the alumni program of different schools. Mm -hmm. And uh, you know it was a great business. But um, eventually, when that price point got to be fifty bucks, that was the uh, that was the end of the decanter business. 
So um, they had passed away in 1981. I joined them in 1977. So I had four years in the business, and then I was handed this business. So um, it was a rough ride. We had to buy a bottling facility in Lawrenceburg, Kentucky, near Lexington, where I bottled my whiskey and stored the barrels in the warehouse. I would buy whiskey from other distilleries, and a lot of distilleries did that. Distilleries, Wild Turkey were short of products, so they would buy barrels from other distilleries because they were short of yeah. it. Because the bourbon business is not the vodka business. You have to plan ahead. And so the whiskey we make today is not going to be consumed for 10 to 23 years. Uh, most distilleries' product is younger than that, so they didn't have quite a business plan as long as we do. But um, you could, you, it's tough to, to gauge your supply and demand and so forth. So they would buy whiskey, and I was able to buy bulk whiskey by the barrel, put my name on it, old Rip Van Winkle. Um, the Pappy label came about when I saw this picture in a file in my basement, uh, going through some of my grandparents' stuff, some old tax returns and this and that that I was going to throw out. And I <clears throat> had some old 20-year whiskey that was not sold at 15, although it hadn't even started a 15-year-old label at that yeah. point, but I was buying some older whiskey from actually Wild Turkey or Austin Nichols was the company that owned them then. Um, and it was 20 years old, and I said, well, I'll honor my grandfather with a label. So that's where the Pappy label came from, the 20-year-old. Um, and it got a great rating from the Beverage Tasting Institute in Chicago. And, and um, when was when, that? 1995. 95. Mm -hmm. My distributor in Chicago, unbeknownst to me, entered our 20-year mm -hmm. in, in just a yearly whiskey contest, and it got a 99 rating. <coughs> Excuse me. And... Um, that was the highest rating they'd ever given any whiskey, period. So that was kind of, that was, that's kind of where this whole thing started. Wholesalers yeah. would call me. It, it, was, it was actually published in the Wine Enthusiast magazine. So yeah. that was like, hmm, that's interesting. They put it in a wine magazine, and now the distributor from Georgia's calling me. I need to get some of this whiskey that got this great award. And you all know how ratings affect everything, especially wine. Um, if Robert Parker likes your stuff, that's, that's, what's, that's what you want. So uh, that kind of got the phone ringing a little bit. Um, I was bottling my own whiskey from 83 until 2002 when I your, joined. Your own whiskey being whiskeys that you were with finding my name or on distilling? Right. I was, I have, we have not distilled any whiskey since 1972, our family. Um, and was that whiskey what, your, what was your father putting into the first bottlings of Old Rip? He was, that was Stitzel Weller. That was the whiskey that he had made at Stitzel Weller. Gotcha. Most of it. And then he would buy, for the decanters, he were able to buy, um, bulk whiskey from other distilleries because they had excess whiskey you know mm. that's not the case today um, you don't see any excess good old whiskey sitting around so um, just because the demand has gone up so much yeah so he um he bought whiskey from other distilleries usually just two or three different ones uh actually yellowstone whiskey it's got kind of a bad connotation over the years yeah. but uh, buddy thompson a friend of ours made it and it was fabulous and it was a seven-year-old 86 proof whiskey that we put in some St. Patrick's Day decanters and a lot of other things. And if you find one of those babies today on yeah. the market, get it. <laughs> but it might be a thousand bucks, but that's the problem. <laughs> so um, he, uh, my son Preston graduated from the UK in 2001. The day after he graduated, I grabbed him <clears throat> to help me on the bottling line in Lawrenceburg. So um, it, was a, it was a long, tough road over there in Lawrenceburg, Kentucky. And you decided to stop with the Ju the julians after you was yes that? he was julian preston um i'm julian proctor but i'm the third so then we're not royalty we're not english we didn't want to go the v julian <laughs> but i thought that was enough yeah. but that's confusing because our initials are the same so i get called preston a lot but mm -hmm. i grabbed him and um 
and uh, Buffalo Trace knocked on my door um, in 2001 also, and they had bought Weller, the, peop- the company that bought our, our labels, which was Diageo back then, ended up with it. Um, they're British. They sell scotch. They know how to sell scotch. They know how to sell bourbon. And they sold all the all of our old labels, and Buffalo Trace ended up with uh, W.O. Weller. So they wanted to partner back with the Van Winkles, kind of get us all back in the fold. And uh, that's when we hooked up with them in 2002, and that's when things really started taking off. Yeah. So then you had uh, the constant product, I suppose, or a constant supply. Well, it didn't start right then, but we started making whiskey again under our formula. And um, they had owned Weller for several years, so we were able to use some of the Weller formula for our whiskey, which is the same. It's the same weeded mash bill. So that's when our supply started to increase, but um, it's been a great relationship, and um, uh, our output of case sales were about 2,000 cases in 2002. Now they're almost 10,000, 9,500, and you would never know it because the demand has increased more than the, uh, it's amazing. Than the supply. So we can't get it right, but that's not a bad thing sometimes. Well, and, and I suppose you can't grow quickly, right? Right. I mean, you make something today, and it's going to be ten years at least before you before you bottle it. So that's the hard thing for people to get in their heads when they say, "Well, why can't you just make some more?" And I explain it to them, and then they go, "Oh, yeah, it does make sense." So it's a little tricky business, or it's a yeah. long business plan. And I suppose even with Buffalo Trace, I mean, they're making a number of of products, so they're making the whiskeys that, that you all are bottling to a certain specification, but they're making their own, they're making right. Weller, they're, so they're, um, I mean, their output is limited at some level too, isn't it, or is it just? Well, they could, we're not making this whiskey as fast as we can, and you really don't want to do that. My grandfather had a, it's probably in this book somewhere, I'm sure it is, about, um, um, you know, you want to make a really good product and keep it in seemingly short supply. Seemingly. Um, and uh, seemingly being the key word, but we, we don't hold inventory back. People think we do because to keep the prices up, but, uh, you know, we're not getting the $2,000 a bottle you see on the, on the aftermarket. So it's a, um, you know, it's a regular, regularly priced product. Our, our whiskey sells from anywhere from $70 to $300. So um, it's, 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 it's um, a tough, tough thing to figure out. But they, um, they're making a lot of whiskey, but not, you know, we, we, we've increased our production a little bit every year, but you sure. don't want to get too greedy because this thing might stop someday. I don't think so, but it, it sure could. So you, I have been stuck say, with inventory. So you remember the time where, I mean, light whiskey and, right. I mean, so that's still in the back of, of your mind, yes, I guess, at it, all times. It's, it's still rather painful throwing away decanters and stuff that wouldn't sell. And, and um, you know, the bank calls every 30 every three months and wants their interest payment. So uh, I wake up at night in a cold sweat thinking that's, it's like not studying for a test in school. I still have those dreams too. <laughs> well, Dad, isn't that too where the 20 year came from because you were sitting on excess whiskey? Is that how it got aged to that? Yeah, it was year? unsold whiskey at, 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 a, at a younger age. It wasn't intentional that you were sitting there right. letting that whiskey age, right? Right, but I did taste it at 20 and I said, wow. This is exceptional. Yeah. So that's when the whole I, Pappy label started. The one thing you hadn't mentioned about how all this came about, too, is just that tasting the 20-year, obviously, was something special enough to bottle. And so I think that's, too, where something that he's kind of implemented in the industry is um, older whiskeys weren't necessarily the most popular. It wasn't really necessarily. Older hmm. did not equate to good at the time, right? Back in the day, that's a 
kind of an evolution of the industry it seems like yeah i guess we were and i you know what i'm doing today is what my father and grandfather were doing in the 50s and 60s selling older weeded bourbon whiskey but their older was what seven ten well they they also had some special bottlings of 12 to 15 years okay. old um and which was un, very uncommon in the bourbon yeah. industry back then so i all i knew is i enjoyed that style of whiskey so i had a 12 year and it went to the 20 years the next one and um you know there was that was kind of an unheard of thing also so it i don't want to beat my chest too much but i guess we were the first ones to kind of start that aged bourbon whiskey sure. thing and then all of a sudden others follow you know would follow suit so it was and it all happened because i just happened to enjoy older whiskey it's just more um you know obviously more uh, interesting and, and certain times of the day you know older whiskey is really good after dinner younger whiskey earlier in the day and so forth so it's just something mm -hmm. i really enjoyed well, it seems to have caught on. It seems you to know? have. It's a lot of that out there now. I remember, but, it, but uh, I mean, I still remember we had done a tasting of this bourbon thing for our class. That we went to the local store up the street called Liquorama, um, <laughs> which is actually a great wine store and, and whiskey store. And it certainly was a great whiskey store. But, you know, on the shelf, there was, you know, A.H. Hirsch, 16 and 20. So we got a 16. Uh, we got Pappy, 20. I mean, we had these great bourbons for our class to just try oh, different kinds of bourbons, and, and we still could, and they were still sitting on the shelf, you know, at, at a regular, price. At a regular right. price. You know, and we thought, well, it was sixty dollars. I don't know. That was a lot. They're lower. They're working, they're working on it. <laughs> when when was the first rye whiskey? Nothing. Uh, mid '90s, also. Uh huh. Yeah, I think so. And that was some that I'd purchased from um, the Medley Distilling Company, and uh, that. Diageo owned. I bought the barrels from them because they were. I didn't want it. Um, and I. I mean, this was a. This was a 13-year-old rye whiskey. The, the. I mean, we can get into the rye whiskey. Um, you know, tomorrow when we talk about the production. But um, you saw rye whiskey, and it was wild turkey. Four-year-old Jim Beam yellow label. Four-year-old over old Overhope. Four or five years old, and that was it. But dusty on the bottom shelf mm -hmm. in the liquor store. Nobody cared about it. It was an old, an old type style from Pennsylvania, Maryland area, and um, I never tasted rye whiskey in my life until I tried this 13-year-old rye whiskey from Medley Distillery that Charles Medley made, and it was it blew my mind. It was amazing. Um, God, I loved to have a bunch of that. But anyway, well, um, you can't make, make whiskey like that anymore. But uh, anyway, the older whiskey just kind of caught on, and it's um, um, still still going strong. Yeah. All right. Well, and Carrie did mention about you. Just because it's old doesn't mean it's good. You have to produce your whiskey. It has to be designed to be aged that long. So you can't distill it at a very high proof and put it in the barrel because it gets too much wood extraction. And you have to put it in a warehouse where it's not on a hot floor for 15, 20 years. Uh, it gets too woody. My whiskey would be terrible if I left it on the mm -hmm. top floor for 20 years. So you have to keep it on the cooler floors. Uh, so it doesn't get too woody and uh, too much, um, you know, the, the the sugars just go away completely. And it's really dry and nasty after a while. That's why you don't see any 30-year-old bourbons, cause, like scotch, because it doesn't get very hot in Scotland. Huh. Um, it's about four or five years in Scotland versus one year in Kentucky as far as aging in a warehouse. So. Really? And how much evaporates? Like, have you ever opened a 20-year-old barrel to just find it dry? Too many, and that's a bad day. I'm that's sure a lot it of money is. down the drain. But... Um, uh, yes, 
we have we lose 10% the first year and 3 to 5% every year after that and if the barrel um, really gets has a leak in it or starts evaporating even faster um, the more air that is exposed on the staves above the liquid level which can be as low as 4 or 5 gallons in a barrel of 23 year old um, it just really starts to evaporate so fast that it just it's gone after yeah. a while but mostly the empty ones have leaked out somehow understood well, I, uh, switching gears just a little bit, I remember uh, the first time I ever saw, or actually it was the first time I'd seen one and, and I actually owned it, was a, a shirt with the label on it, uh, you know, uh, the, the Pappy label. My wife had gotten it from me, actually, or for me, uh, from an employee sale at Blackberry Farm. It was a shirt that had been in the gift shop, and uh, it was a Billy Reed, mm -hmm. like, waffle knit, uh, long sleeve shirt. And uh, it was the only one they had, and it was like extra small, so I've never worn it. Uh, it's like it's like an Under Armour shirt, you know. It just shows off all the bad parts. But um, but it's a, an amazing shirt. And I remember thinking, this is amazing, you know. And I think it, some of those early products, maybe Billy Reed jumped on with the SFA. But I remember seeing it and thinking, this is amazing. But it was a very limited run, yep. and and I think you had seen some of those and, and tried to harness that into a business and, and how you've yeah, done it. Yeah, Billy's t-shirt definitely inspired our, uh, our t-shirt business. Yeah. He was definitely part of that. But um, yeah, it was just only a matter of time before, you know, this popular brand that was so uh, important to so many people that, uh, that, you know, to have merchandise associated with it. So it was a natural progression for us in our minds to think um, that it was needed. Mm -hmm. Yeah, for years, Preston had just created things here and there for friends and family and um and you know it occurred to us like gosh there's really nothing out there for these crazy fans and we should we should do something and it all really actually came about when our sister Chanel who was really into eBay selling mm -hmm. and that's probably almost ten years probably. eight years yeah. ago she was selling everything on eBay it's kind of funny it was an obsession obsession of hers and she sold her Carhartt old Rip Van Winkle sweatshirt on eBay for 50 bucks nice. and around a family gathering one night it's like oh my gosh you all have sold this this sweatshirt for 50 bucks but we gotta let's do this why are we not selling things so I had just moved back to Louisville and was unemployed at the time and thought you know what we will let's do it I'm doing it so literally the next day hit the ground running yeah. and um, Chenault has her own interior design business so she's never been real involved Carrie's lived in Idaho so together remotely we we started Pappy and Company and about I don't know maybe six months later we launched um, just with a small line of t-shirts and barware um, out of my basement I think we wow. ran it out of my basement for the first two years really and um, so the neighborhood association didn't know anything about it. <laughs> yeah was yeah, it zoned for that uh, <laughs> oh at Christmas time he'd like walk in the mailman would walk in the kitchen and be like I'm here I'm just gonna open the front door and start loading yeah I'm like all right I'll be out in a minute I'm cooking dinner uh, so it's been it's fun to look back to see yeah. where it all began and um, where we where we are now we've got our first brick and mortar uh, flagship store in Louisville and in, in a great area of town and um, a neat a neat old building that we've all renovated the last two years and our sister Chenault's interior design business is upstairs so it's just a big family operation yeah big collaborative work environment I'm wow. hoping to get a rent check pretty soon yeah I'm sure <laughs> I'm sure so it was it did you hit the ground just running or was it uh, was there 
like, oh gosh, this isn't going to work, period? Or? No, it was, it, it's been nice, slow. It, it, it's all relative, right? What you consider slow and steady versus quick growth. But um, it's been a nice, steady growth for the last six years. Um, nothing that we couldn't manage, but definitely a success from the start. Nice. Um, and it's just been a completely organic evolution. We, you know, come out with bourbon balls. Oh, those those are really popular. Maybe we should work with Alvin Sinclair in Nashville, and he does a brill for us. And it's just completely evolved, just based on what we know is popular and what we love ourselves, and what we want to use on a daily basis, and what inspires us. So it's been a really yeah. I hate to keep saying the word. It just organically just natural evolved. process. It's natural. natural so we haven't had to work too hard to try to figure out what to sell. It's just what we like and love. And, well, and now we realize it's so um, easy that we have this foundation that our bourbon heritage has created for us. And so it's been kind of easy in that regard, not the business as aspect. I feel like that's, you know, especially now we've been in the thick of for six years. So like the growth aspect and just operations and that's tricky but we feel so thankful that we just have this amazing uh, heritage that we can base any product on mm -hmm. and it just really keeps us true to what we know and what we want to do to move forward We're keeping up with things that otherwise get lost so quickly so that's been a really cool part amazing do you ever i mean i assume you do as you bring new products in you think you know, you're sort of extending a little of your, your family's worth and your family's name, and, and there, there must be a lot of weight yeah. Almost, yeah, you know, on your shoulders. Mm -hmm. you know, yeah, we do, we're definitely sensitive to that, and um, I think it's easy in the sense that I feel like it's all we know, so I don't think we would necessarily stray too far from what sure. we think is right and what is right, but, you know, we definitely need to run things by Dad, and sometimes we're better at it than other times, but... Um, yeah, I feel lucky that we are just feel so secure in what we're doing because it's all we know. Mm -hmm. I mean, we do sell koozies. Yeah, <laughs> yeah we, we do. There's, but, but we use koozies, yeah. so that's yeah. Yeah. that's kind of our parameter too. It's like, do we use it? Yeah, we use a koozie. Right. Sure. And um, plastic frost flex cups are like our thing. Which yeah, is yeah. Hilarious. Dad drinks his whiskey Whoa. at his that's own his home choice. out of them of what to drink a cocktail out of these plastic cups. <laughs> well, they do terrible in the dishwasher. In the dishwasher. And they don't dry on the steam heated dry cycle. But um, not flipped over, yeah. So there's going to be those items that we can Sure. We'll draw the line at that. Gotcha. Yeah. Do, do people ever call you up looking to buy whiskey? Yes. Oh, daily. Is that like, phone rings a lot constantly. So yeah, you they have, call us up saying my bourbon balls weren't very good or my t-shirt was ripped. Right. So yeah, there like, is a little bit of confusion cross. about who's selling what. I got you. <laughs> yeah. Which is fine. Well, it, but the, I mean, the laws don't allow for you to sell whiskey. Right. right? So it keeps it simple in that regard. You just have to obviously re reply well. Yeah. Have the distribution laws changed over the years that where the model for selling you know, whiskey looks different, or or do you see that changing ever? It um, it's changing in that the three tiered system is still alive and well, and the and the distiller, the wholesalers uh, lobby is very strong in Washington D.C. That probably will never change because the three tiered system was set up after prohibition, um, and that means that <coughs> the producer distiller sells to a wholesaler; they sell to a licensed store or bar that can restaurant that can sell to you all so that that will probably always be the way it is um 
for some reason, the wineries can sell direct from the vineyard. We can't do that. We can, but it has to go from our warehouse to a distributor, back to the gift shop, and then it goes to you all. So how screwed up is that? And you have to hold um, two licenses, I guess, to do that. You have to. Yeah, have you have a retail, kind of a retail license, license, especially. Yeah, it's all licensing and, and so forth. But um, there is loosening of uh, just like the you know the marijuana thing. It's loosening of, of liquor laws in each state. And each state, after prohibition, was the 21st Amendment says each state will control their own liquor system. That's why you see 17 or 18 control states like Virginia, North Carolina. Ohio, so forth, or you have open states like Kentucky and Tennessee. Things are changing, but not 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 enough. And then you all got into a different vice with your uh, business, which was cigars. Huh. And that's is that your that's your biggest seller now, or it is, yeah. And the vices we, are always. We didn't yet. start out thinking that it would be that way, um, but it is. People really love cigars. Yeah, yeah, and it just obviously makes perfect sense for our brand with. With Happy bourbon, on the label. Yeah, and and he, <laughs> he was a cigar smoker, and um, so you know we just made sure to partner with another company that we thought was uh, exceptional at what they make. In the, in the process of making it, right? Yeah. Do you want to? Yeah. So uh, the the cigar that we created with Drew Estate, and actually Jonathan Drew, who's the president of Drew Estate, had this really neat. He's kind of known for innovative, wacky cigar blends. Um, and they're kind of off the beaten yeah. path. So he had this blended cigar that he'd worked with this, you know more about St. James Parish in Louisiana, but there's this area in Louisiana where they barrel ferment tobacco. It's called the Perique process. And so he already blended up this cigar that he didn't know quite what to do with. And then that's exactly when we met. And he said, you know, the light went off. He's like, this is it. This is what we're doing. It happened to be already, he was already barrel fermenting tobacco in Louisiana. They've just started using our happy barrels to ferment the tobacco, but at that previously it's just been I don't even know generic barrels. But you don't get a flavor of the bourbon in the, toba in the tobacco; they're not infused. It's just this really unique process. So the tobacco it's meant to pair well with whiskey drinking. Yeah. yeah, and the tobacco is Nicaraguan tobacco with Kentucky fire cured tobacco that comes from Hopkinsville, Kentucky. Um, so they fire cure this tobacco, ship it to St. James Parish, Louisiana ferment it in barrels for at a least year. a year yeah. and then blend under, it. Under 500 pounds yeah. of pressure. Because tobacco that's traditionally is fermented, so right. that's not necessarily the different part, it's but it's fermented in barrels, whereas usually in um, traditional cigar making, they ferment the tobacco in pylons, which are just basically uh, strategically piled tobacco. Yeah. And so that pressure of just being piled up creates the fermentation process. So this is just a different way of fermenting the tobacco. And usually, two fermented tobacco, um, or no, the smoked tobacco is traditional in uh, pipe tobacco. Oh, yeah. So it's also an innovative thing that JD, Jonathan Drew, put this uh, smoked tobacco in a cigar, which is was very different. Um, so it's a really unique cigar and yeah. very popular. But somehow yeah. what's cool about it is it's very innovative and different, but it's very likable across the board. Like I'd say 99 out of 100 people would really enjoy it. So for being such a different cigar, it's, it's real likable. And we don't even smoke cigars, but we can tell you a lot about them. <laughs> Amazing process. What did you do with the barrels? I mean, I noticed now <coughs> barrel, you know, yeah. bourbon barrel age syrup, bourbon barrel age this. I remember at one point uh, uh, a Shiraz 
mm-hmm. was yeah. made, you know was put um, into the, the barrels. But what did you do with them before that, or is it? It's a uh, one of the rules of making bourbon is um, along with has to be made in the United States and has to be mostly corn, has to be put in a new charred oak barrel. So we can only use them one time. So we uh, Buffalo Trace, our partner, has several uh, different distillations processes throughout the world being Canadian, Scotch, Irish, uh, rum. Um, so they all use used barrels from distillers in Kentucky or wherever to uh, help, you know, help in aging their products. And uh, our friend Dan Phillips, uh, who was, that came up with the idea that, um, which we have now realized we should have patented or trademarked. Yeah, you should have. Yeah, yeah, I've seen other people it. jump on it. None, none was as good as that mm-hmm. first mm-hmm. round. It was a Shiraz from Australia, and it was a big wine. It was 17.5%. And he put it in um, our barrels, 20-year barrels, for just a few, a month or two, not yeah. much. It didn't get the whiskey flavor, but the depthness of the, uh, the oakiness and uh, just a different, I mean, you got the taste buds, buddy, you know. Um, I think it might have picked up a little alcohol, actually. Yeah, I think so. But uh, they were fairly fresh, but not that fresh. So most of the alcohol would have evaporated, but it was still the flavor still in there. But um, yeah, you uh, you know, tequila, añejo, tequila is aged in used barrels. So um, uh, rum, beer, um, everything you can imagine, tobacco. um, But it's crazy. Yeah, we don't sell our barrels. You know, it's not, a, it's not yeah. a product that is right. going to hit the Pappy & Co. Mm-mm. website anytime well, soon. Well, we use them, but I guess I guess what I'm getting at is we don't sell them to breweries. You know, that sure. people call all the time Same asking thing. for our barrels, and then they want to be able to probably sell a Pappy they want, they want barrel beer. And, yeah. Yeah, and so that would just be a can of worms. But um, So we obviously buy them back from the distillery for all of our needs at Pappy Co. In regards to all of our barrel-aged food products, and then we do things like um, make... Yesterday there was a cutting board out with, with the staves. We make really cool butcher block cutting boards and uh, bowls and even some furniture pieces like lamps and we've done all kinds of stuff. But um, we've, we've used them in a way that's not your typical looking country barrel. Like rain collector or flower pot. Right, <laughs> yeah, so we've kind of taken something, something old and created something new and more current or uh, clean and modern out of them so it's been kind of a fun project with that but yeah so we'll we'll use his barrels but nobody else so one more question for for pappy and co um i've noticed your uh, logo a few times on some of your products and obviously on labels and such where where does that originate is this well unique? the keys there were five keys that pappy had hanging on the door to his office at the Stitzelweller distillery they were they were the five they symbolized the five steps in the bourbon making process but also the keys to hospitality and so when six years ago when we were creating our brand we incorporated three keys to represent the three sisters oh okay so i was wondering sure. what the keys yeah didn't really just kind of based off of our bourbon heritage and what drives us forward is, is a, it's a good symbol of that if you, look on the, if you look on the old Fitzgerald, I guess those that brand's now owned by Heaven Hill, but uh, if you look on the label, uh, it says somewhere on there, the key is on there, and the keys to hospitality. You know, that was their, kind of their ad slogan back in the day. <clears throat> and now uh, Diageo, who owns our own, own distillery, has reproduced some five brass keys, and they're on the front door. Yeah, and so uh, there's a brand called Larceny that Heaven Hill owns, which is mm-hmm. the old Fitzgerald brand that they're pushing. It's got a key on the neck wrap, so there are yeah. three different companies using those. So keys. we're lucky that we started Pappy and Company before Blade and Bow and right. all those because they really picked up on our 
on the same heritage to promote the brands. So if you ever look in the Garden and Gun magazines, I always notice the um, blade and bow. Yeah. You know, I think it's an image of the Sitzelweller distillery, and it's got their five, I don't know, I think it is five keys, but mm -hmm. um, I just turned the page real quick. Yeah. <laughs> you refers to it. It's fine. I found a tie clip the other day in my dresser. Um, it was the key, brass key, and they used it quite a bit. It's about that, that long, and it was a tie clip. Remember mm -hmm. those? Mm -hmm. um, and they had cufflinks, little smaller ones, cufflinks. And, uh, salesmen wore yeah, and they would, um, a company called Hickox made them. I can see the little white box. It was a shiny finish to it. And um, they would hand them out as gifts to, to customers. And all the salespeople wore, you know, the, 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 uh, yeah. the key to hospitality tie clip and so forth. So it was kind of a great, great little gimmicky uh, trademark thing that uh, they and Pappy used to, you know, promote the brand. It was fun. That's amazing. So one more question for you, Julian, then I suppose... Um, and then maybe some questions from everybody else, but there's still that tasting where we can dig deep. But uh, a couple of years ago, we were really surprised to um, see a release of a new product, which was a 25-year old rip. Uh, we've since sold our one bottle that we got, despite our best efforts not to sell it. Um, and, and, and it's gone. I think there were 700 and something bottles produced. Uh, are, are there other products hanging out that we should know about now? Nothing in the works, but I would like to, but we're so hemmed in on our supply, we don't have enough juice to Seemingly promote something like that. In. Seemingly. Seemingly hemmed in. No, we are. We're selling every <laughs> drop that we bottle. Believe me. Um, but it's, um, uh, 25 was fun. It was kind of an experiment. Uh, it was a 23-year-old. We, we taste every barrel before, my son and I taste every barrel before we bottle it, as does a lot of the staff at Buffalo Trace, too, because they have the real... You know, they taste every day. They can pick out these little nuances that are not, mm. not, not quite good enough. Um, it was it was okay. The whiskey originally was stored on the higher floors at Stutzweller, and um, it wasn't. I, I'd like to try it again. So uh, it's we have nothing working right now, but uh, there's a lot of stuff cranking around in there that I'll probably never get to try someday. But uh, we're working so on the it. the nature of this. <laughs> that's what the younger generation's stuff. for. But, uh, yeah, that, I understand. Uh, I think uh, Dylan said y'all sold the last drink from that 25 recently. It was recently, yeah. And, and it was it was a fun project. It uh, took a couple of years to come together at least, and uh, the barrels staves from those actual 25-year-old barrels were used to produce the gift box that the bottle was put in. So it's yeah. kind of a fun thing, and I kind of stole the idea from them. <laughs> hey, well, nice looking box. Which great. is one really cool aspect of this situation where – you know, we have a product that you can't find, and so obviously that can be really frustrating for customers, but, you know, one thing that I feel like is really great and, um, you know, a side, a side thing from this crazy situation is that we get to raise a lot of money for amazing organizations that are so deserving. So it's one small thing that we can do without having a whole lot of product is obviously creates um, a lot of demand and money raised for organizations, yeah. so that's a really cool Which you aspect. do, and it's, it's certainly appreciated. By, by, I know, the SFA that we work with. Right. A lot of yeah. other um, charitable foundations. So um, I want to say thank you to, to you all and to, to Julian, who's refreshing his, refreshing his palate as we speak. Thank you all for listening. Thank you for listening to the Blyberry Podcast. Continue following the journey wherever you subscribe. Thank you to our guests, interviewers, and audience. 
dive into more stories, videos, photos, and podcast episodes on theblackberrymagazine.com. Make a great day.